Hey friends, the information in this podcast is current up to the date which it was recorded. Information is ever-changing and may vary from state to state. Your best bet is to always check ssa.gov for the most current updated information. Also, stay tuned to the end of this podcast because we have a special bonus interview that we did not know we would have until literally this morning. This interview is in regards to some special accounts that you may be able to qualify for, which will help you get SSI or SSDI benefits you didn't think you would qualify for. So stay tuned. Thanks so much for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to Vision Magnified. We are a podcast that showcases the blind community living limitlessly, breaking barriers and smashing stereotypes, proving that we are more than just our disability. Happy Thriving Thursday, everybody, and welcome to Vision Magnified. I'm Sasha. And I'm Amber. And I hope we don't sound, well, I hope I don't sound too nasally because I have a bit of a cold. Um, But today we are going to talk about SSI, SDI, Medicaid, and Medicare. And I know that it can be a really dry subject and kind of sound like talk radio, but Amber and I are going to do our best to make this as lighthearted as possible, talk about some of our experience with these things, and give you some info uh, that you should know. The first thing we should do is start by explaining. Some people don't know the difference between SSI and SSDI, and the way that I think about it is like SSI or supplemental security income is a benefit that you are entitled to if you meet the income requirements because it's a very income-based benefit and you can get this from the time you are diagnosed with your disability until the time you either start working or for the whole rest of your life. Um, and that's just in its basics. We're going to get into it more in depth in just a bit. But SSDI, that is based on if you are a working individual and then you either become disabled due to your work or you become disabled, period. Like if you go blind, the credits that you earn for the amount of years that you work, uh, they add up to tell you how much money you will get per month. And uh, we're going to go into that more in depth. Amber, would you like to start us off? Sure. We'll start off with SSI. And the thing with that is uh, this is the most income-based of your of the options for income through Social Security. SSI, which is Supplemental Security Income, as Sasha said, can be given to you as a child. If your parents' income is at a certain level, uh, is below a certain level, or once you hit 18, it's given to anybody with any with a disability. Uh, it doesn't have to be blindness. It takes into account other, any other income you make. Um, the types of income that SS for SSI purposes would be earned income from uh, from a work, uh, self employment, um, certain royalties, and that kind of thing. Uh, unearned income is all income that's not earned, like. Other, other social security benefits, pensions, state disability payments and things like that. Um, in-kind income uh, is food, shelter, or both that you get for free or for less than the market value. Is that, and then- like, is that like when you, let's say, I'm going to watch your kids, but 
because I'm watching your kids, you're giving me free rent. Is that kind of like a thing or where it's like, Mm -hmm. basically because you're so when you give them your your totals of like what your bills and utilities and and out output goes and there's nothing there for rent they're gonna be like well what about rent and if you're like oh you know I watch my friend's kids and I get to live there for free they're gonna count that um and you know you'll get a lower amount in your in your SSI check the other one is deemed income which is uh part of income of your spouse with whom you live or parents with whom you live or um your sponsor if you are not from here so just to touch on that a little bit there's a huge issue in this community uh, about the whole deemed income situation because that's where you run into the issue of both of you are on ssi and because you marry um, you end up getting your checks decreased because you make too much money as a couple. Yes. It's, you know, or even, even if the other, if your spouse or partner works, uh, or is self-employed, like any of those other things, if your spouse gets those things, it's counted against you. What income is, does not count, you know, they, they say like the first 20 bucks, of, of income that you make each month. You say that uh, the value of uh, SNAP assistance, so food stamps um, received is not counted as income. But when you go and tell them how much you have to put out for food, it it's kind of weird because it still kind of makes a difference. In, in Income tax refunds. So if you do work, only your net earnings are counted. Your income tax refund would not be counted. Home energy assistance, so like LHEAP or um, electric or gas assistance, things like that, that's not included. So like if you're on SSI and you have a hard time paying your electric bill, if you go and get assistance with that, they're not going to count that as income because it's not going to you. It goes directly to the power or the utility company. Also not counted as assistance based on need funded by a state or uh, local government. So, um, you know, even if you're going to like the food bank or things like that, if you sell things, like if you receive income irregularly or infrequently, like if you sell something and you don't sell it very often, like, oh, I just sold a bracelet for 10 bucks. Like they're not going to count that. And it's interesting because they say interests or dividends earned on countable resources. So I guess the interest you accrue on a resource that they do count, that interest isn't counted. Um, financial aid, Pell Grants, things like that. They say that uh, loans to you, so if somebody loans you money, that's not counted. Money someone else spends to pay your expenses for items other than food or shelter. So that seems to be a new thing because... Yeah, that's gotta be new. They were trying to count... Even if, you know, your friend gives you some money yeah. and yeah. Like if your mom bought you a burger or if your friend bought you a burger at McDonald's, that would be counted against you. If if you were um, needing to fly somewhere because of a funeral or a wedding, again, that would be counted as a gift to be counted as your earned income. And then cost of impairment related work expenses or services for a disabled person. So, for example, you know, if you get from um, Voc Rehab, if you get a transportation check, 
to pay for your bus pass. That's not going to count. And then work expenses that a blind, specifically work expenses that a blind person incurs. And there's a whole um, thing on that um, disaster assistance and, and whatnot too. The best thing I can recommend when it comes to social security um, the, the social security web website, ssa.gov is really going to be your best resource. I wanted to talk for a bit about what it's like to apply for SSI, how that, how that has gone for both of us, um, because it's different, right? I actually have been receiving SSI since I was two or three, um, that because that's when my diagnosis occurred. So I remember my mom and dad going into meetings and she would talk with a social security worker. And that worker would ask for question for information on her income, my father's income, where she was living, the rent. Um, it was very scrutinized back in the day when I was first applying. When I had to apply um, as an adult after having worked, it was a little less stringent, but there were some uh, reviews taking place. I received SSI from the time I was like two or three till the time I was 17 to my parents. My parents, it would come... Uh, care of my name um, or my parents care of my name and then you know the social security um, jargon and so it was my check but they were able to do with it what they saw fit with it and there was not a um, there was not a list needed to be given that they spent it all on me like there was no proof that they needed to show that it was spent all on me it literally just helped pay everything when I was 17 my mom, because I had moved out, she transferred uh, SSI into my name. And it was weird because when she did that, I got all of this mysterious back pay. So here I am, 17, with over, like, I think $1,100 in my name. It was the first time I'd ever seen a check that big. So, of course, I went spending. But with the back payment comes the, whoops, we overpaid you. So now we're going to be taking $50 out of your check until your back payment is paid in full. And that happens a lot with Social Security. So just be prepared. Um, they, they will, from what I, what I remember talking to a worker, they said that they will never leave you destitute. Which basically means that they will not take your whole check. They'll take like $25 to $50 depending on how much you get until the overpayment is uh, completed. Once I was 18, I had to do what is called a yearly review. And on these yearly reviews, they um, would ask if everything is still the same. And basically, if it is, okay, just here, sign this paper, and off you go. But if I started working, I was I would have had to report that to them. And then they would want to see pay stubs. Now, I am going to recommend that you never, ever turn over original pay stubs or paperwork to the Social Security office. Always make copies give them the copies because when I was older and I started working um, I actually took down I think six months of my pay stubs to them to make copies and they disappeared with them and then came back and said so-and-so is gonna make the copies and then we will call you back to come pick them up and I never heard back so I called and um, they had no clue what I was talking about um, and those pay stubs mysteriously disappeared. So I highly encourage you to always give copies and never originals. Um, I eventually did get them back. I was one of the lucky ones. I got them back. Um, but it was um, very scary because that would have been the first time I would have had to pay taxes. And 
I didn't know if I needed them. So um, definitely just be prepared with some copies of things. And um, when I started working, I reported my earnings. And once I made a certain amount, or once it was, I think they gave me, I told them I was on a probation period for three months. And uh, I had to report my pay stubs for those three months. And then after that, I um, stopped receiving benefits altogether. That's kind of in my experience with SSI. Amber, do you want to share yours? Yeah, so I actually started receiving SSI when I turned 18. Um, I actually received um, back pay because they took time getting everything together. I remember having to do, just as you, the, the yearly reviews. And, you know, as we got more into that, you know, using technology, utilizing technology more and more, those yearly reviews started to feel real weird to me. I remember sitting in the office for one of them and I had to bring my bank statements and she looked over my bank statement and said, what is this? What, what did you receive money from PayPal for? Trying to be transparent and honest because, you know, I don't want to lie to the government. I said, oh, well, I bought, I bought something that I, that I couldn't return. It didn't work out for me. So I sold it for less than I bought it for. Nope, that's income. You need to report that, um, is what I was told. I don't know if that's so much the case now, nowadays, but uh, yeah, that was that was a little bit frustrating. I had worked a couple of times being on SSI and didn't report, and then they, of course, find out. Um, and I ended up with an overpayment. Well, by that time I was working and making enough money where I didn't even need SSI and I got completely off SSI in, I want to say 2010, all the way up to, all the way up to now, because it's different. I have, I have a different uh, form of income that we'll talk about. Um, but even now that I will, now that I'm on SSDI, they're taking overpayments from when I didn't report my work earnings back in the early 2000s. And yes, they take, uh, they take from me, they take a hundred bucks a month from me. And that was after filling out hardship paperwork, uh, is what they call it. When you need them to take less money because, you know, you need to live. So I filled out the hardship paperwork again, showed my bank statements and all of that stuff. And, uh, you know, instead of them taking half of my check, you know, they take a hundred dollars, which still hurts. Um, but yeah, it, it's, and I went a lot of the time having SSI, not even realizing or not even learning or researching exactly what was what. So, you know, I mean, they could have been making things up off the top of their head. Um, but I didn't know because I was so scared to lose that income when I had it and needed it and didn't have any other income that I didn't want to make waves. And that ultimately like led to my, you know, disknowledge, like just not knowing anything um, properly. Uh, the one thing I can say um, as far as nowadays, um, because I'm going through it with one of the, one of the kids, everything's done over the phone right now. Uh, we called, said we wanted to get the child onto SSI 
they asked the questions about the income, this, that, the other. We sent them IEP paperwork um, and, and, and testing paperwork from the school. They sent they sent us to the doctor with the kid to, to, to their own doctor for them to do their diagnosis. And now we wait. Uh, but everything except for the doctor's appointment was over the phone. And uh, I don't know if they're going to continue to do it that way, but I prefer it. Yearly yeah, reviews over the phone and interviews in general over the phone are definitely a thing um, because they want to make it uh, accessible for us to be able to provide the information that they need and to do so in a timely fashion. It is not always possible for someone who is disabled to get a ride into the office. Phone interviews can always be arranged. I know that when, when I was living with my grandparents and paying rent with them, um, it, I could get a ride all the time, but sometimes I didn't, I didn't want to bother them to ask them. So I would ask, can I please do my interview over the phone? Like, um, I don't have a ride and, um, the person who usually takes me will be out of town and I would just schedule it over the phone because for me it was less nerve wracking. Cause I, I know that, I know that this is probably true of a lot of people, even though we are 100% entitled because we are visually impaired. Even though we're not doing anything wrong, going into those places can sometimes be very intimidating and make you feel like like you are doing something wrong just because you're there. I feel like uh, doing an interview over the phone was less stressful. I could sit in the comfort of my own home um, and, and just talk to someone rather than be face-to-face and feel like everything about me was scrutinized. Oh, you know, her hair is colored. She has nice clothes on or she mm-hmm. has, you know... Like, I, I just feel like um, when you're blind and you are applying for blind services, if you, I, even the services that cater to us have a preconceived notion as to what we look like and how we act, and uh, I feel like when we don't meet their standard, um, I, I feel like we're scrutinized and um, that makes me feel anxious. Absolutely. I mean, and that goes back to what we spoke on during the blind services episode, as far as like paratransit and, you know, being told to look blinder than we are or look like we can't keep ourselves together going into the office. Certain ideals are so antiquated and they're so harmful to the blind community. And it's really just a shame when they exist in our own blind services. SSDI, Social Security Disability Insurances, it's a, uh, a payroll tax funded from the United States government. It's managed by the SSA or Social Security Administration, but it's designed to provide some benefits to people who uh, maybe have become disabled or who have a medically determined disability that is restricting them from doing any kind of work. In order to qualify for this benefit, first of all, your employer must be paying into Social Security Disability Insurance, um, and you have to fulfill the two criteria, which are you must have worked a specific amount of time um, at a particular job, and you have to have the Social Security Disability Insurance, and you also must have a medically diagnosed disability that prevents you from working any longer. The major difference between the two SSI and SSDI is that SSI is uh, determined by your age and your disability 
and limited income resources, whereas SSDI is determined by uh, the type of disability or, or the way that your disability prevents you from working and the work credits you have uh, obtained by working. And I think that was something that I had no clue about was work credits. And I was like, how much is a work credit? Is it per year? Is it per month? Um, and I think we discovered it, what, it was like a month and a half. Yes, it was uh, a month and a half. You can receive SSI and SSDI at the same time as well. Um, mm -hmm. However, so what, where I run into a trouble uh, is I manage my money in a way that allowed me to have savings when COVID happened. And because of that savings, I'm able to um, afford my bills and stuff right now. Um, but because of that, I'm, I'm entitled to my disability benefit, but not my SSI benefit because literally I need to let my account dwindle down to $2,000 in order for me to apply for SSI benefit. In order to stay on my feet, when my savings gets to a certain point, I literally have to go back to work because it is not feasible to let my bank account dwindle to $2,000 and then apply. Because once you apply, even though once you're getting disability, it is much easier for you to get SSI, um, I don't know that it would happen in the time frame that I would need it to. And the last thing that I would want is to not be able to afford my bills. If they allowed me to receive SSI with my SSDI, that would not even take care of my monthly expenses. Um, I believe the max that you can receive between the two in my state is 800 and I think it was $865. Really? Because yeah. they were going to, let, well, they were going to let me apply. I don't know if I would have gotten it because when I got my social security disability, I was, I was in your state uh, and it, they told me to apply for both. Well, they told me that I could apply for SSI. And uh, I would get it because I have SSDI, but I'd have to not have that money in my savings and I could only get a total of 865. So whether it went 430 and 430 or all mm. of my like $506 disability and then the $361 or whatever in SSI, like that's it. No matter what I did, that is all I could uh, make. And... Given that my expenses are more than that, it wouldn't even cover my expenses. So I would still need a little bit of my savings to pay the rest of my expenses. And even still, eventually I would have to go back to work. It would just take longer time for that money to dwindle. When I was working, I thought that all the jobs that I had automatically paid into Social Security, paid into disability ins insurance. I thought that because I was seeing... Social Security taken out of my check that that meant that I was going to get um, disability insurance. And this is not always the case. Nope, that Social Security is retirement. So um, you need to make sure that if you are going to get a job that your employer pays into SSDI. Uh, because that is how you earn those credits so that you can... Uh, receive benefits if you become disabled or if you become further disabled. And if you are self-employed, I mean, it goes without saying, make sure you pay your self-employment taxes because um, you can, I believe, from what I understand, you can tell 
the tax board that you want some of that money going into social security disability, not just retirement and Medicare. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, like I was saying, SSDI does support people who have a qualifying work history, um, either through self-employment, like Amber was saying, or through a family member, like a spouse or a partner. Um, benefits can begin either the first full month after the date of uh, the claim that the claim was initiated or filed, health insurance would automatically qual- qualify for Medicaid upon receipt of SSI, but not SSDI. So with that, and this is something I learned, and I don't know if it was just an Oregon thing or if it's uh, nationally. Um, I was on Medicaid, or I when I stopped working because with my disability, I got on to Medicaid. Um, I was able to have that Medicaid up to the first year of having my social security disability insurance. Then that's when I was switched over to Medicare and taken off of Medicaid. And I think because of the way my finances were, um, I was well in in Oregon. Apparently, I think it is you're not able to have both. Mm-hmm. In some states, you can have both. You can have so, for example, in California, you technically can have Medi-Cal and Medicare, which Medi-Cal is California's Medicaid, and you get that Medicare even if you are not. 62. Um, That threw me for a loop when I started getting all of my Medicare information because nobody ever told me anything. Um, I was like, why am I getting this? I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not in my 60s. Why am I getting Medicare? That's for my grandma. I was very concerned. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other thing that you have to know with the Medicare, if you do end up working, um, because there's a certain amount you can still work with social security disability. If you do end up working, if they offer you health insurance, you have to take it. Mm-hmm. And then your Medicare, I guess, is set as a, a backup or something. Um, you, but you have to take the med- you have to take insurance if it's offered, even if it costs money. I had a, a problem with that uh, when I was working at an independent living center. I their health, their insurance was very expensive and I didn't want to have to take it, but I had to mm-hmm. because if I didn't take it, then Medicare could come back and be like, you know, why? And, you know, somehow poss- do something, you know, I don't know what the consequences are, but I was told, yes, you have to take it. So what is the difference between Medicaid and Medicare? Medicaid, it's basically the difference between Medicaid and Medicare is the difference between SSI and SSDI. Medicaid is income based. You have to have you you have to be under under specific income limits, and you can receive the Medicaid, and that's often um, issued through the same office you get your food stamps from. Medicare is for people who are on Social Security disability or retirement. Uh, And Medicare has a monthly premium. Now, 
though you may not quali- though you may not be able to have Medicaid, like say if you live in a state that doesn't allow it, you, though you may not be able to have Medicaid and Medicare together in some states. If you go to your local um, Medicaid food stamp office, they, uh, you know you go there and you let them know, hey, this hundred and I don't know what it is right now, hundred and something dollars a month, I can't afford this. They'll take a look at your income and they will offer you help with your Medicare premium. Oh, okay. So you basically you would have to go, you would, you would have to, is there forms? Is there a process? There's forms and it's like an interview. Well, it's probably, you know, again, it just check your state, but uh, oftentimes it's done at, at the same place. You get food, st- uh, SNAP benefits, food stamps. Um, and honestly, if you qualify for, for SNAP food benefits, then you should qualify for the extra help to get the Medicare premium uh, paid. So how did you find out about this? Because I I have no clue. Um, I have no clue about my insurance right now. I, I actually, um, I learned a lot of it from uh, the independent living center I worked at. A, they employ a lot of people with disabilities there, but also, you know, there are people there that are well-versed in social security situations. Um whether it be SSI, SSDI, whatever, um, I learned a lot of the information from from there. And then when, since I was working and receiving my social security disability, I got connected through them to a work incentive network um, person. And they helped me navigate working, how much I can make, you know, so how many hours I can work at the pay that I was getting, Medicare, all that stuff. Um, and then I was also referred to a in Oregon, it's called Sheba, and they help you pick out your Medicare Advantage plan. Okay, so now you did mention something that I wanted to bring up and talk a little bit about. Um, there's First of all, I do want to say to all of you listening... There is so much information, paperwork, paragraphs, verbiage to work through that it can be very overwhelming. Um, and I, I, we do have some resources that we will be putting up on the website that is forthcoming. Um, but uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of it um, to talk about because there's so many things. So, I can highly recommend if most states have what are called centers for independent living sills um and you may have to go a a city over or maybe a county over or something but most states do have a center for independent living that work with all different types of people with different disabilities um get in contact with your center for independent living it's not a residential place anything like that they they really they have information and referral specialists that can help you, you know, navigate government stuff. They have often social security, knowledgeable uh, counseling there. Uh, It's a very good uh, resource. So there are, um, if I remember correctly, there's two types of work incentive programs. There's the work incentive program that SSDI does, and then there's Ticket to Work, which Social Security does, correct? Ticket to Work actually works 
whether it's social security, whether it's SSI or SSDI. Ticket to Work works for both. The Work Incentive Network mainly is, an, um, they're just mainly kind of like a counselor, if you will, a social security counselor that kind of will tell, will pull your social security reports, will tell you, make sure you're, you know, make sure you're registered as blind, will tell you what your work limits are. And, you know, it'll, it, they give you information to present to say you're a revoke rehab counselor who ends up having that ticket to work uh, situation. So, it, are you just automatically if you if you're working with voc rehab or if you are um disabled or on benefits of some sort and they find out um do they send you information how does that happen do you have to apply um because i know i've gotten letters about tickets work but i did not apply for that so i'm not sure how that happened ticket to work if you work with voc rehab they're your ticket to work uh they hold your ticket, basically, They, you know, if you want to say it like that. They're the ones who are facilitating you going back to work if you're working with Voc Rehab. Um, there are other companies out there in other states. You know, it might be a commission for the blind. It might be, a, a, you know, um, just plain Voc Rehab. Or it could be... Don't trust websites that say that they can help you with your ticket to work and they're going to hire you and there's a call center agent or whatever. It's it's a scam. <laughs> I can tell you that much. But mostly it's usually a commission for the blind or evoke rehab service. That's really good to know. Um, and also, um, in that vein of like talking about going back to work, your voc rehab counselor, at least both of mine have, in, in two, the two different states that I've lived, um, they've given me... Uh, things like a Schedule A letter or different types of certifications that would allow me to get very good government jobs um, should I be able to find them. Um, you can speak with a voc rehab counselor and they will talk to you about different uh, positions that you can get that call for these certifications. They pay well and they will train you and they will also work with voc rehab. Great options, yeah. Any final thoughts that you have on the subject, Amber, that you wanted to get out? Just, I mean, use use your resources. Uh, sometimes the Social Security Office themselves is not the best resource. They're there to, to intake you, and that's about it. Um, you know, definitely... If you have voc rehab, ask your voc rehab counselor if they're, you know, then they'll they might refer you if you don't know where your your independent living center is in your area. Um, but definitely, just just work your resources as much as you can. Also, I would add to that um, whether it's voc rehab or the commission of the blind or or lighthouse guild, whatever you're work whoever you're working with, um, ask questions. Ask questions because chances are they've been in meetings, seminars, things like that to be able to answer the questions that you have. And if they can't answer your questions, then uh, Google flu, you know, get on your Google, do research. And then fortunately, um, the research we have to do is very wordy and very verbose and um, it's a lot to get through. Um, there are so many 
things that we are entitled to that we might not even know about. And I 100% recommend what Amber was saying and checking out your independent living centers um, because that is going to be your best friend, apparently, in, in all of this information. Um, because I know that before we started doing this research, I was lost on a lot of things. Um, not feeling like I had been working, but I'm getting such a pittance with my disability benefit. I didn't understand why. I understand why now. Um, it's, it's just a lot of research to wade through. So don't give up. As usual, we, we say don't give up. Um, use your resources. Uh, advocate for yourself. If you have questions, don't give up till you find the answers. Um, we will announce on our TikTok when the website is up and running. And we hope to have some good resources for you all there um, so that you can get your questions answered. Um, but that is going to do it for this edition of Vision Magnified. Thanks so much for listening and we will see you next week. Whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hang on. Okay, so remember that interview I promised you in the beginning of the show? Well, without further ado, here it is. This is me talking with my friend Lou in regards to some special needs trusts as well as the ABLE account. These are accounts that I was not made aware of by the SSA when I was applying for benefits. So... I want to shed some light on these accounts for you and hopefully this will help you get the benefits that you deserve if you've been having some issues. So without further ado, Lou and this morning Sasha, take it away. The way that I understand it is that there's the ABLE account and then there are two different special needs trusts and one of them is the pooled trust, correct? Pooled income trust. From what I understand about the pooled trust, is that there could be a it could be a first party trust or a third party trust. Now, from what I the research that I've done with the video that you sent and then the um the website that I was on, if it's a first party trust that is set up by the beneficiary, um, like I would do, let's say I would make that trust in my name or to a to a nonprofit, and they would handle like bills and things of that nature. And in the event of my death, money would go to reimbursing Medicaid for any medical expenses covered. And then the nonprofit would take ownership of the remainder of those funds. Is that correct? I do believe so. That is how I understand it. Now, in the third party trust, that would be something that was established by like uh, parents, grandparents, or some other third party with that nonprofit. And then again, in the event of my death, Medicaid is not required to be paid back. And then they would get the funds back. In that case, like there's a lot of people with different disabilities. So certain in certain cases, you have parents or grandparents who are the guardians and have like, you know, legal uh, standing for the person that they're watching out for. Would this be somebody who has legal guardianship? Um, over the beneficiary or could this be just somebody who sets it up for that beneficiary i am not 100 percent sure on that but the way that i would understand it is the third party trust would be somebody who might have more of a uh, mental disability where they cannot make their own decisions and somebody would have to make decisions for them mm -hmm. so the third party would 
be the one where somebody is making the decisions for the trust. In the case of just a first party pooled income trust, um, can you elaborate more on anything that we haven't touched on so far? As far as I know, I've, as I've looked into it, I have not done this yet. I will clarify that. I have not had a pooled income trust myself. I looked into it and then did not need it in my particular case yet. So the pooled income trust are run by nonprofit organizations. Which they get a little bit of a cut. I think it's like $30. I forget what the time frame is. It might be once a quarter, once a month. I am not, I cannot recall that right off the top of my head. But, and then they deal with everything for you. You know, you take out whatever money you need because basically if you're looking at Medicaid and you're over by say $200, let's keep it even. And so you take that $200, put that in the pool trust and now you qualify for Medicaid, but that $200, the, the beneficiary or the, uh, the nonprofit organization, uh, can use on your behalf to pay groceries, your utility bills, part of your rent, stuff like that. Do you know if there's a cap per year or per quarter that you can put into the fund? Like, can you continue to, to donate into the fund? There may be, I do not know it offhand. I do not want to give false information. I know with the ABLE fund, there is an, a cap, and I don't want to confuse one with the other. Let's say I have a first-party pooled income trust. Let's say I have $1,400, and because of that $1,400, um, on top of the $2,000 or whatever, I no longer qualify for SSI. So I would take that $1,400 or so and give it to the pooled income uh, trust, the first party pooled income trust. And so with that $1,400, they will pay rent, buy groceries, pay bills, do all those things in my name. Like they'll do it directly for me. They don't give it back to me so I can pay those bills, correct? Well, when you start giving them the money, you have to fill out paperwork with them. Mm -hmm. So you make the call as to where they spend that money. They will do it for you and fill out the paperwork and, you know, which is handy for, you know, people with vision impairment. But so they, so they kind will, of become an accountant of sorts. Yes, they will be. They will go as to your wishes, but you kind of figure out what you want. And then there's, from what I researched, there is a lot of people who give a lot more money to the trust than they need to mm -hmm. just because it's a bill paying service for them. Right. You know, they they pay into it the extra money whatever, and then the pool trust or the uh, nonprofit that runs the pool trust um, pays the bill pays their bills and it's a way around you having to fill out paperwork or you know go through the schlock when you're visually impaired. So basically, just makes it easier for them to pay their bills, but they're paying for the service. Yeah, you, you pay a small fee. I know that. With each nonprofit, they might charge different different um, amounts. Mm -hmm. The one that I looked into was $30, I believe, every quarter. So every three months. In talking about the ABLE Fund, 
I know that that was something that they did tell me about, but they said that I would have to do a lot of paperwork. Who is responsible for doing all of this paperwork? Is it the Social Security office or the bank, rather, who is setting up these, these funds, or is it on the, the responsibility of the visually impaired person? From what I've done the research and what I would consider common sense is whoever controls the you know the able fund if a bank has the able fund you should be able to walk into that bank sit down at one of the desks like you would for anything else at the bank and have them help you open the account okay because as far as i know able able accounts or able funds that have seen different names but they are controlled by banks so you should be able once you find a bank that has an able fund you should be able to walk in and they should be able to walk you through it an able account is set up so that you can have a savings fund for you can save up for stuff like a house or if you're trying to create a business and need the extra money and once it goes into the able fund it's not counted against you kind of like you were talking about with your situation you have the two thousand dollars so they're trying to you know penalize you for having that money right if it was an able account they wouldn't be able to count that now as far as i know the able account you can put 50 up to fifteen hundred dollars in a month i believe that there is a cap on the able account but it's one hundred thousand so if you're making that much, then good on you. These uh, funds are more for those who get SSI and less for those who get like SSDI, correct? Or does it matter? I do not think it matters. Okay. I mean, I am coming at it from the perspective of social security disability. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And the person who helped me, which it was a uh, community resource manage, manager who was part of the health network that my doctor was part of. Being that it's such a big health network in my area, they do have like social workers and like this person that's a community resource manager that helps you with finding out stuff. They, they help get you through the red tape is what their job is. So for some, it would be like your aging and disability resource center yes. or your disability centers or your independent living centers. They might be able to assist with getting you more information about these accounts. In my area, the community resource manager, the we do have a independent living center in this area. They work hand in hand. Uh, community resource managers are only a temporary they're not going to be somebody that they're paid for they can help you out and move on to the next person they're not a long-term service but they will help you like like in my situation i was trying to apply for section 8 housing and such and the community resource manager that i was working with helped me fill out all the applications for all the different section 8 housing in the area and made sure that she could meet up with me. And when I needed to get uh, signatures on the paperwork and such, made it very easy for me. I, I cannot, 
I went eight years with not knowing half this stuff and thinking that I was not eligible for Medicaid at all until I met her and she opened up all this stuff and all the stuff that I'm talking to you about, the ABLE account, the pooled income trust, I learned through her. Now, is there any information that you think our listeners should know that we haven't covered about these accounts? Um, check, but verify. But there is a lot of information on YouTube, especially with, you know, visually impaired people. YouTube is your friend. As far as, you know, having stuff read to you, videos, such. Um, the ABLE account is in all 50 states. It might vary slightly state to state, but every state has its own ABLE account. And I believe that the there is a government address for it, but for each state, the abbreviation changes. I cannot remember. Uh, caught, un- caught unprepared a little bit, but there is a government, so it's like ABLE dot, like, I'm in New York, so able.ny.gov or some such. If you do a Google search, I'm sure you can find it. But like every state has information on the ABLE accounts. And primarily those are set up by banks. So you're going to want to find a bank that will help you yes. open that account. So um, I'm not sure if every bank has them, but if you do your research and call around, I'm sure some of the bigger banks probably offer them. And I would also say, if you do not have a bank in your area that has them, start checking some of the internet banks like Allied and such, because they work completely off the internet, so it doesn't matter where you're at. Once again, I want to say thank you to Lou for his time and information, also for the resources that he gave me in learning a little more about this pooled income trust, as well as its first party and third party benefits. I'd also like to say thank you for the information on the ABLE account, uh, as he has some more information that I did not have. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and have found it informative, and we look forward to seeing you all next week. Have a good one. listening to the podcast this week we hope you enjoyed the show and look forward to seeing you next time you can find us as vision magnified official on tiktok and instagram and on twitter as vmo podcast see you next time <laughs>